Welcome back to Solve Crimes with Rick and Gavin. In today's episode, we're going to review the brutal 1970 murder of 22-year-old Carol Beth Hilburn. You may recall that we discussed Carol's case in The Other Girls here on our channel. We will also discuss how Solve Crimes investigated and discovered a brand new suspect that no one had heard of in the 50 years that this has been a cold case murder in Sacramento, California. We met recently with lead detectives from Sacramento Police Department and Sacramento County Sheriff to go over how we connected this new suspect to Carol and how we never would have put it together without the help of Carol's birth daughter, Linda. She was instrumental in our investigation into Carol's murder. This is Solve Crimes. Beth Hilburn was 22 years old in November of 1970. She had a fairly turbulent life until that point. Married twice, the first one being annulled, and the second marriage looking like it was also ending. She was separated from her husband for about three months at the time. Carol had also put a baby, a daughter, up for adoption in January of 1968 with the help from the doctor who delivered her. 22 years later, that baby, Linda Pinocchi, would seek out her birth parents and unfortunately discover that her birth mother had been brutally murdered before she would even reach the age of two years old. Carol had lived in Sacramento in 1969 with a roommate, Jan, who you'll meet later in this episode. Carol was going to school to become an x-ray technician during the day and working as a cocktail waitress at Lloyd Hickey's 40 Grand Club on Del Paso Boulevard in North Sacramento at night. Carol had been having some trouble with drugs, speed to be exact, and she wasn't enjoying x-ray technician school. So Carol moved back to Santa Rosa, where her mom and her sister lived. Sometime after that, she met and married Jay Hilburn. The marriage didn't last long, because by the time summer of 1970 came around, she had moved in with her sister. By all accounts, her split with Jay was amicable. Carol even stopped by for a visit before her trip to Sacramento. Jay would later tell police that Carol was hanging around biker types. On Friday, November 13, 1970, Carol and her friend Deanne left Santa Rosa to spend the weekend in Sacramento, where Carol was planning to visit former co-workers and a guy that she liked at the 40 Grand Club. Carol had called her former roommate Jan and told her that she was going to stay with her Saturday evening. Unfortunately, Carol wouldn't live to see Saturday night. Carol was last seen alive in the early morning hours of Saturday, November 14th. One account has her getting into a vehicle with two men and another woman around 5 a.m. By late morning, fishermen had found Carol's nude and battered body in a field in nearby Rio Linda, roughly six and a half miles from the 40 Grand Club. The two men seen leaving with Carol were identified, interviewed, and apparently cleared of having anything to do with her murder. They are both now deceased. So Gavin, there wasn't a lot of uh, evidence found at the scene where Carol's body was found, and it was pretty clear right away that that was not where she was murdered. Right. So, yeah. but the preliminary coroner's report did give us a lot of information as far as what had happened to her, right? Yeah, this report is very brief, but it's chock full of information. And one of the things that supports the whole idea that she wasn't murdered where she was found, one were the drag marks on her. 
Mm-hmm. And two, she was covered in like a yellow fuzz, like she had been, I don't know, draped or wrapped up in a blanket or a carpet or a towel or something. And that's what was used to kind of drag her around. That was one of the things that was brought up. Another thing was that there were possible needle marks in her arm. And we do know uh, from her friend Jan that Carol had uh, an addiction to speed at the time. Right. right? And there were amphetamines found in her system. That's correct. Um, Another thing that was found on her was she was cut across her neck, but it was a superficial cut. So it's, right. it's been reported online that that cut was there over the years. Uh, it makes mostly, you kind of think that that's how she was killed, right? It does. It does. But in the report, it talks about it being a superficial cut, not not what killed her. What killed her was the brutal beating that she sustained on her face and head. It talks in great detail about the lacerations around both eyes, her nose, her mouth, her chin, uh, in between her mouth and chin. And then on her left eye, there was a deep wound. It's described as two inches by two inches by two inches. It is a deep and large and gaping wound. And it's specifically by an axe or hatchet-like instrument. This was, this was a brutal, I mean, all deaths are brutal, but it was, this was not a quick thing. No, she was beaten. She was, I think she was tortured. I I think that it took a long time. It almost makes me feel like they, either the suspect or suspects enjoyed doing that to, to women or was trying to get something out of her. That's what I think. Yeah. And that kind of plays into some of our theories that we'll talk about a little bit. Right. Now, one of the things that I did want to bring up, Rick, is that a lot of people connect Carol Beth Hilburn's death to the Zodiac killer deaths at the time. You know, Northern California was rife with the Zodiac activity at this time. And the things that kind of connect Carol Beth Hilburn to those other crimes, it, it she was described as a nurse's assistant. And I think that connected her to Donna Lass up in Tahoe, which mm-hmm. I'm not sure that that is a Zodiac death either. But and there was proximity, geographical and timeline too. That's correct. Yeah. And but I think from this report, I, I think I'm solidly in the camp that Carol Beth Hilburn was not murdered by the Zodiac killer. Right. Well, even the even the Zodiac websites, I think uh, all of those, you know, pretty much say the same thing. I mean, they they investigated it thoroughly because they wanted to be sure but but they all pretty much came to that same conclusion that we did yeah so this this death of miss hilburn is something i think local to sacramento local to the club that she was hanging out at and Mm -hmm. local to the people that she was associating with yeah and and you know it is something to note whether it's important or not um there was never at least in the press there was never a publicly named suspect Right. Yeah. In the report, the police did know of a couple of people. Right. Uh, but it appears that they that didn't pan out as as anything. So. Right. Right. Nearly a year later, the night before Halloween 1971, and less than three miles from the 40 Grand Club where Carol was last seen alive before her murder, 25-year-old Mary Lou McNeil's body was discovered in her 14th Street apartment in downtown Sacramento by two friends. She had been tortured and bludgeoned to death. Beating someone to death is not a common thing. Naturally, it grabbed our attention. 
We discovered that Terry C. Carpenter of Sacramento was immediately identified by police and was wanted for McNeil's murder. He stole a car and fled Sacramento a week after Mary Lou's death. He was arrested roughly four weeks later in Omaha, Nebraska, and extradited back to Sacramento in early January of 1972 to stand trial. The first murder trial against Carpenter ended in June of 1972 with a hung jury. A new trial was set, and Carpenter was ultimately convicted by the second jury for voluntary manslaughter. When we found out after doing a little bit of research and digging a little deeper that the Mary Lou McNeil case uh, actually kind of opened up into some other things. We found a bunch of connections and interesting facts that led to her death. Yeah, we sure did. In fact, the reason that we found Mrs. McNeil in the first place was that she was so similar physically to the other victims that we have in California. But there were some striking uh, dissimilarities that actually led us to connect it to Carol Beth Hilburn. So Mary Lou McNeil was a widow of a former Hells Angels officer. He had had been in a bad motorcycle accident, was paralyzed from the neck down, and then ultimately died of a drug overdose. But, you know, in Sacramento, when you think amphetamines and you think bikers – you think Hell's Angels, right? The, and the 40 Grand in Club. 1970, yeah. In, 19, in the 70s, yeah. And the 40 Grand Club was the epicenter of that in Sacramento. Right. And that's, you know, when we first, uh, like you said, she, Mary Lou was similar. Uh, she kind of fit the mold of these other murders that we've been investigating. Started out with the, you know, Judy Hockery case. Right. Uh, so when we got on the phone, that was my original angle. It wasn't specifically about Carol, but while yeah, we were on the it phone. It actually started, holy crap, look at this death, Gavin. It looks yeah, just hey, like Yeah, I found Judy another Aubrey. one. That was kind of yeah. the phone call. But then as we were on the call and and I was doing some uh, uh, research uh, with, uh, you know, basically publicly posted uh, news clippings, that kind of thing, we uh, slowly, we started to see that that it was more similar to Carol's situation. Mm-hmm. Her address, where she was murdered, it was in her own apartment, um, was 2.7 miles away from the 40 Grand Club. Right, right. Super close. Uh, so then when and it opened up and all this other stuff. Death, the manner of her death was very similar as well. Yes, yes. That's what clued me in when I found out there was, you know, it sounded like like when I called you, hey, I found another one. But then, but then we dug deeper. So this guy, Terry Carpenter, such a character with a long and glorious history of petty and violent crime. He says that he went to talk to Mary Lou McNeil over, over her drug addiction problem. Right. When he left again. Yeah. When he left, she was fine, but he needed to steal a car and run to Nebraska. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's one of those guys. I mean, his, you know, we've talked about this for a while now, the, uh, uh, the range of, of run-ins with the law were just so bizarre. I mean, just a few years before, uh, Carol was killed and then, and then later Mary Lou, uh, you know, just, I think it was 65, 66, somewhere around there. Uh, he had within a month's time had burglarized, a uh, a place, in Rio Linda, by the way, right. right near where Carol was found. Uh, and then another one where he and a friend of his uh, stole a car from the Bay Area, drove it up here, and then set it on fire. And then a couple of weeks later, and I don't know, this kind of puts you to this guy's mindset and maybe his intelligence level. He was arrested for interfering. This is what they said. 
interfering with a funeral procession of a fallen police officer, oh. not just any funeral. So guy just, you know, I don't know about you the brains on this guy, that. but yeah, but he was just the guy, the guy had a, a, a life of just making very bad decisions. When we interviewed Carol's former roommate, Jan, she told us about how Carol had planned to come up to Sacramento that Friday, November 13th, to see a guy that she had a crush on. When we asked her for his name, she said that she only knew him by his nickname, Playboy Johnny. Of course, that was his name. It did take a bit, but we found Playboy Johnny. His real name was Hubert John Flannery Jr., and he had been in trouble with the law virtually his entire life. He was known to associate with the Hells Angels. He was a biker and had even been arrested at his own wife's funeral for writing a bad check for a motorcycle. And he hung out at the 40 Grand Club, where Carol probably got hooked on speed. We also discovered that in 1977, Flannery's body was found in a shallow grave alongside Folsom Lake, just outside of Sacramento. He had two bullets in the back of his head. He was wearing a Mickey Mouse t-shirt. The police identified two men and a woman responsible for Flannery's murder, and when they went to make an arrest at an apartment in Sacramento, they found baggies of speed being packaged for sale all over the place. And when we did the extra research uh, with the Mary Lou McNeil case uh, and Terry Carpenter, um, it really wasn't a stretch for us to, to kind of come up and connect the dots with some of these things with Carol's right. case. Yeah, it's not a stretch at all. Uh, right. I, I kind of feel like Terry Carpenter was kind of an enforcer within the Hells Angels organization, or at the very least, a wannabe enforcer. Exactly. That was the other thing. Yeah. I think that Mary Lou McNeil, um, kind of as a widow of a Hells Angel officer, uh, herself a drug addict, she probably knew something that she wasn't supposed to know. And, and Terry took care of that on behalf of the club. That right. that's what I think. Yeah. And I, you know, maybe I'm going a little too far, but uh, I don't think it's that big of a stretch. I was thinking that considering that she was a, a widow of a hell's angels officer and she was uh, 25 years old, had two small kids. I thought that she might be prime target for the DA's office to try to get her to, to be an informant. I mean, at oh, that time yeah, they were she public be... enemy number one, right? So, oh yeah, the seventies in Northern California, the Hell's right. Angels, man, it, that, law enforcement was working hard to take this club down. They so that was so my first thought power. was that if the DA's office was looking for an informant, who better? She could at least give them names and things. And then I remember distinctly saying this to you on the phone, and I said, "What would the Hell's Angels do if they found out she was talking to the DA's office?" And what did you say? Oh yeah, it was just like they'd get rid of her. She'd they'd be have dead. her killed. Right. Yeah, That's just right. like that. Yep. Yeah. So that was and, a yeah. That kind of makes me feel like be, because the similarities are so striking in the way that both women died, Carol Beth Hilburn mm -hmm. and Mary Lou McNeil, I feel like they were killed by the same person. I don't think it's a big stretch at all to say Terry Carpenter is definitely a person of interest in the death of Carol Beth Hilburn. And the other right. thing about Terry is he has a connection to Rio Linda. Yes, I remember distinctly that when I first, the first time I went to the scene where, where her body was found, and amazingly enough, 50 years later, it's still a field. Um, when I pulled across the street from it, I remember calling you and I said, I'm telling you, Gavin, whoever did this knew Rio Linda. It was not, even today, 
the path because I took the path from the 40 Grand Club to the the uh, field in Rio Linda. There are, I'm not kidding, even now, dozens of fields where someone, if they're mm -hmm. trying to get rid of a body, would have pulled over and gotten rid of it. No problem. To get back to where Carol's body was found was you had to know the area. Yeah. And for people who don't know the kind of Sacramento area, Rio Linda is still very rural. It, yes. it kind of feels like Sacramento in 19 or the greater Sacramento area in 1970, even today in 2020. I think right. the only difference between that, that scene where Carol was, was found that field then and now is there's probably there's a fence now and there probably wasn't then. Yes. Maybe the trees are a little bigger, but that's Yeah, the fence it. wasn't there because the the what we were told is that fishermen had found her body because that area of that field is where fishermen would park their cars and then they would walk a little ways to the uh to the dry creek where apparently there was a there was a lot of fishing going on. So yeah, the fence was not there. It's all barbed wire fence now. Yeah. Well, I mean you asked the question, is it a stretch to connect these two murders? No, it is not a stretch. And I'm really hopeful that uh, law enforcement will take these seriously and will use the tools that they have right. to, to, I don't know, to see if those dots actually do connect. Well, that's what was so satisfying about that that meeting that we had with, uh, with the Sacramento Police Department and the Sacramento County Sheriff's uh, Department, they, it was satisfying knowing that we had done enough research to present them with something that was new in a 50-year-old mm -hmm. case. I mean, that was very satisfying. Um, whether it pans out or not, that's a whole different thing. But it was very, it was great that our viewers ultimately on this, you know, YouTube channel that we have, uh, after 50 years, we came up with something, all of us collectively came up with something new. Led to a person of interest that nobody had ever thought of before, and uh, yeah, the the fact that they didn't know about him, and I and I kind of have to be empathetic or sympathetic to the officers that are investigating these cold cases because mm -hmm. this is a fifty year old case, and so, many things have been lost, you know, uh, including they're looking, lives. A lot yeah, of people that are involved with this are dead. Are, are long gone. So it's a hard job what these cold case investigators have to do. And hopefully we've given them something, something new that they can, they can track down. Yep. Carol's birth daughter, Linda, you met her in episode 11 when we interviewed her, helped us set an appointment with the lead detective at Sacramento Police Headquarters on Friday, November 13th, 2020, 50 years to the day that Carol arrived in Sacramento for a visit, her last visit. Also in that meeting was the lead cold case detective for the Sacramento County Sheriff. The two agencies have worked together on Carol's case from the very beginning, since her body was found right on the border of Sacramento city limits and county land. We presented our thoughts on Terry Carpenter to the detectives, giving them all the details that we had gathered. They confirmed that Carpenter has never been on a suspect's list, mostly because the case of Mary Lou McNeil was never a cold case. Carpenter had been identified almost immediately. So the nature of McNeil's murder wasn't something that was talked about 50 years after the fact. The connection between the way Mary Lou and Carol were murdered were never made. We spoke to Linda outside of Sacramento Police Headquarters right after the meeting. After speaking with the cold case detective for Sacramento PD and Sacramento Sheriff's Department, right. did you come away with feeling that you got what you were looking for, even if you did, couldn't comprehend what you were looking for? I feel like it's good to know that uh, we're maybe able to collaborate with them and that they will be helpful um, in our journey uh, trying to find out 
um, some answers. I, I think that they are uh, understaffed, um, but they are definitely in it with heart and skill. Um, I believe that Detective uh, Neeland is amazing and capable and a, a, a force to be reckoned with. So I'm sure hoping that she is able to find the time to help. Did you come away with the sense that they are taking the case and you seriously? I do. I, I feel respected, I feel acknowledged, and I feel valued by both of them. I think they both commented and leaned into that, um, that idea that they do value the families and, and the families of the victims. Absolutely. And do you feel they explained like uh, the case as best they could without giving up information that they're, they can't give up? I believe they did that and more. I, I think that they were clearly honest with us and they were, um, uh, they showed a focus to take the leads that they already have and that, um, and th that they shared that with us was, as, was clearly um, just as honest as they could be. How are you feeling right now based on the, after the meeting? I feel encouraged and I feel uh, still full of hope and I feel focused. I do feel focused and I feel like there's a team with heart. So is this the best you've felt since knowing about this, this what happened to Carol in the first place? Uh, I can't say it's the best I felt. No, I can't, no. I think the best I felt is when I met um, Rick and Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I actually felt better then, but I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll pay you later. <laughs> <laughs> what do you uh, What do you make of all this progress? I mean, after everything we've just discussed, I mean, you know, with the movement happening fifty years after the fact, um, you know, being able to present that to law enforcement. Well, I think this case prior to us kind of getting involved in this and, and not as far as like patting ourselves on the back, but kind of figuring it out and having some viewers contact us, getting some new information. I think that this is breathing new life into the investigation. Right. As far as Mr. Carpenter goes, we're kind of at a dead end ourselves and we, we need a little help, don't we? It's, it's, right. we've had a hard time finding him. Well, I mean, the, all of this stuff happened so long ago that, you know, uh, we're not sure how far certain uh, you know, organizations go back with digitizing their records. Uh, there wasn't a lot of stuff put out there for, you know, internet sleuths. <laughs> so, so yeah, right. all of the, we've exhausted a lot of our, uh, we, we thought we came close a couple of times, uh, just in the last few days, actually. Um, but yeah. we have not specifically identified, uh, Terry C. Carpenter. And yes, we've searched Terrence C. Carpenter, Terrence Craig, because we do know his middle name is Craig. So uh, we've done all kinds of searches in, uh, you know, federal prisons, uh, California state prison. But then again, this was 50 years ago. I mean, he, he could have actually yeah. done his time already and been out for the last 30 years. The federal inmate search is only digitized back to 1982. Oh, okay. Uh, so I couldn't find him anywhere in there. We searched the California uh, inmate system. We couldn't find him anywhere in there. I don't know how far back that those records are digitized to. Yeah, um, 1982 is tough because he, you know, uh, he was convicted, I think, in 72. Um, and remember... Uh, he was not convicted of murder. He was convicted of, uh, of what was it, uh, manslaughter. It was so, negligent manslaughter? Is that what it was or something? 
Right. And, and it, it was definitely less than murder. So odds are he might have been out of jail by the time 82 rolled around. Uh, yeah, I think you're probably right. So we and we did find a couple of obituaries for uh, Terry C. Carpenters. We found two of them, mm-hmm. both born in 1946, which right. is when Terry Carpenter was born. And family members in Sacramento. We thought we had it. Mm-hmm. But we're not quite sure that we're not quite sure that either of those are our Terry Craig Carpenter. So if you going to our listeners and viewers right now, if you have the ability to search that out and try to find Terry, if you have a crazy uncle Terry who was in and out of jail, you know, all those little things that may not seem giant to our viewers. Um, but, uh, but it may actually be the little piece of the puzzle that, that helps us. So uh, comment below on YouTube, or if you're listening on the podcast, head to our website, solvecrimeswithrickandgavin.com. There's a form that you can fill out. We call it our clue tip form. Yep. Give us as much information as you can and we'll chase it down and we'll, uh, we'll hand it over to the, I mean, we've gotten this far with, with tips, right. From viewers. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so this is really, you know, let's keep this thing going and, uh, and help law enforcement, anything that we get and gather that we, that we find interesting or, or potentially, uh, helpful to law enforcement. We're going to turn it over to them. Right. With Linda only being in town for the weekend, she set up an in-person meeting with her birth mother's former roommate, Jan. We all met at a park in Midtown Sacramento, and it didn't disappoint. Jan surprised Linda with a pair of shorts of carols that Jan had kept for 50 years. Jan also surprised Linda with a few other things. Jan told Linda that she reminded her of Carol. Her laugh, her smile, and the way she shrugged her shoulders. Linda immediately teared up. She had never heard from anyone that she had mannerisms that came directly from Carol. It was obvious how much it meant to her. As it turns out, Jan could relate to Linda in that regard. She was also adopted. I lived with Carol in about 1969, something like that. I was about 20, she was 21. We lived at 24th and O Street in a two-bedroom furnished apartment for which we paid $110. (laughs) It's been a long time. So, uh, Carol was, uh, when she came up to Sacramento that weekend for visiting, she was supposed to visit with you at some point that weekend? Yeah, she called me, I, I believe she called me on a Friday and said that she was either here or she was coming here. And she wanted to come and stay the night with me, and I thought it was Saturday night that she wanted to stay. And I said, okay, well, when you get settled, call me and let me know where you are and I'll come and pick you up. Okay, that was the deal, but I never heard from her. That was before cell phones? Yes, well before. <laughs> so uh, so how was it you found out? I saw her? it in the newspaper. I saw that a young woman had been killed and dumped in Rio Linda, but she was unidentified. And I had no idea that was Carol. It didn't even cross my mind. The composite sketch was nothing like what Carol looked like and then a day or two later they ran a picture stating that this murder victim had been identified and that's how I learned that it was Carol. So it took four or five days before you knew? More like two or three. And uh, so fast forward to this year and how how did you get involved in all this and get in touch with, with the family? Well, actually, it started with um, something I saw on Dateline, and there was a genetic detective, C.C. Moore, and she was doing all this 
genetic work and finding criminals in cold cases and I contacted her and she encouraged me to call the, the Sacramento Police Department and speak with them, which I did. So that's how that happened. And then uh, uh, shortly thereafter, you, you got a... You Several did. months later, um, I got an email from whomever I had contacted in the police department and they said that they had been contacted by Carol's daughter, Linda, and here was Linda's contact information and she would like me to call her, so I did. Now, did you know Linda existed? Yes, I did. Carol told me that she had given birth uh, prior to moving to Sacramento and, and given that child up for adoption. So I, I was aware of that. So how, how was that? How did that phone call go when you spoke with Linda? <laughs> Linda was at work and she was so excited. It was great. It was great meeting her on the phone. That's great. So for you personally, how, how does this feel with all the movement in the case and everything, you know, all the stuff happening? I'm excited and very, very hopeful. You know, I hope that we can come to some kind of conclusion on this because it's, it's just been too long and for Carol's sake I, I would like to see it finished. And just briefly give, a, give me your, um, your take on who Carol was as a person. Carol was a sweetheart. She was very pretty, slender, tall, and a lot of fun. She loved everybody and she just always had a smile on her face and a twinkle in her eye. And she loved to dance. She just was a, a wonderful, easy person to be with. And you, we've been sitting here for a little bit talking with Linda, and, and you noticed that Linda has some mannerisms of Carol's? Yes, the, the shoulder shrug, and, and when she smiles without her teeth, she looks like Carol a lot. I know I kind of, I was kind of taken aback by that. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so, uh, what would it mean for you personally to, to have this case solved? Well, maybe I can stop fussing about it and, and just let it be part of the past. I mean, would you see it as, you know, justice for, for Carol, too? Yes. Yes, obviously, yeah. Yeah, we just like it to be concluded. I'd like, I'd like to know the end of the story. Next time on Who Killed Carol, we'll go with Linda for her very first time to the site where her birth mother Carol's body was found. It was 50 years to the day that Carol was brutally murdered and dumped there. We get Linda's reaction and talk to her afterwards about how it felt to be there after all these years. Emotions were high all around that day. Thanks for listening to the Solve Crimes with Rick and Gavin podcast. Please subscribe to stay up to date with the cases we feature. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Solve Crimes with Rick and Gavin, for more details and visuals that we can't provide here. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. If you have information on this or any of the cases that we feature, or if you'd like to join the discussion in our case forums, please visit solvecrimeswithrickandgavin.com.